This is your host, Casey O'Neill with the Farm Review Report. And uh, today, today's the first day I think my like, first day of spring is the first day I had a whole bunch of big heavy saddle birds from the solar. So it's not the first day of spring, it's just a little winter, but it's definitely the first day of some solar for me. <laughs> think about uh, with your planning processes, with your expectations for what's going to happen. And I think the the more times you go around the sun, the more seasons you've been through, the better you get at, at figuring out or at guesstimating, you know, what the work plan's gonna look like, how long something's gonna take. That's always a classic one for me, I think, oh, this is only gonna take us an hour and six hours later we're finishing it up and we've pretty much shot the whole day. So all of those, you know, those 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 practices, the the process of practicing the and, and achieving and and building skills and, and capabilities and tools and equipment and all of those things kind of adds up to the, the complex process of, of farming. And uh, wintertime is, is very interesting because it's it's a whole different paradigm from, from your typical like spring, summer, fall farming in which uh, there's a, a different set of variables, you know, for instance, usually fewer pests, although sidebar this year we've been kind of struggling with some slugs and such in the greenhouse um but things tend to grow slower as well so fewer weeds uh crop turnover is much slower and and that planning process is something that i still really don't quite have down in terms of like you know the fact that uh, a 28-day lettuce if it was sown the first of june uh is going to be you know, a 50-day lettuce, give or take, uh, if it's sown the, the 1st of November. And one, uh, a, a trick that, I don't remember where I read it, but I, I found pretty interesting is, is you know, we, we know that stuff isn't, you know, the 1st of February stuff isn't growing very well. Um, but the 1st of December is the, you know, is kind of the same as the 1st of February. So the 1st of March is the same as the first of November, etc. As you as you go backwards, um, and so you're you're kind of when when you're thinking about planting stuff in the fall, it's like oh yeah okay. The later it gets, the the harder it is to get stuff up and going before it gets really cold. And the the one caveat there is I, I think is the, the you know the hoop house equation in which if you can provide a sheltered environment where stuff isn't going to get beat up by the wind and, and beat up by the, the cold, then you're going to have a lot, a lot more effective, you know, a lot, a lot better chance at getting the crops through to harvest. So for instance, for anything that we're going to plant outside, especially like the big heading brassica that take a pretty long time, cabbages, broccoli, Romanesco, stuff like that, I want to start those seeds in August for my, my winter plantings. And, and ideally, I'd start some in July and some in August. And that way, the ones I start in July will come in, you know, November, December, I'll have that early harvest. And then the ones I start in August will come in sometime in January, more or less. And so, for instance, right now, I'm picking a lot of cabbages, uh, the ones in the hoop house developed faster and got bigger. No real surprise there. Um, and so the outside ones are just now heading up, and they're quite a bit smaller, uh, but they they look good. You know, they got battered real hard by that the the snow. And there's a, there's a few different um, sort of tracks or themes I'm going to take off of that. One being uh, the difference in in microclimate and context in terms of 
you know, the valley floor versus the, the mountain uh, up on the hill where we are. Um, and then the other one, you know, being the, this question of timing for starting things um, and, and when you can get them in the ground. We got a whole lot of, of heavy brassica in the ground uh, after cannabis harvest. So in November, you know, after we'd cleared all the beds. And, and so the stuff that went in in November that was in the hoop houses is actually doing very well. Um, they're, they're getting quite big. I expect that they will head up quite nicely and, and that, you know, by the end of February or so, we should be having quite a few cauliflowers, broccolis, etc. Um, and so for late plantings and, and those just, you know, those were, um, planted from three inches. So they weren't small, you know, they were decent sized starts. They'd been up planted once. So planting from three inch pots into the hoop house after cannabis harvest, uh, is, is working out very, very well. And, you know, if you're, if you're running early depths or something like that, that's, it's kind of a different story. You're going to run into a little bit of space issue, but <clears throat> for us, like we're not, we're not planting any depths or doing anything in the hoops until, you know, later on in the spring. And so pulling off a, a winter round actually makes a ton of sense. We can kind of soak up some of the leftover nutrients. Uh, it's, it's, like I say, it's real minimal maintenance. They're, they're just kind of doing their thing. Um, and then some of the faster things, you know, I've been really surprised. I, we haven't done a whole lot of this over overwintering, but uh, bok choy, Chinese cabbage, stuff like that really, really has done so well in the, in the hoop house. And I'm, so I'm super impressed with those. Those have been ready. You know, we've been eating those a couple of weeks now already, three weeks now, planted in November. So it's interesting, like, you can really, in the, the microclimates we have here, you can really do pretty good work uh, in the hoop houses. And, and now, you know, kind of getting into that question of context of where you find yourself in terms of elevation, in terms of microclimate, slope, etc. Like, we're on a, a south southwest ridge line up high, 3,000 feet. So, you know, we're, we're above the inversion layer. We don't get the cold mornings. It's definitely, you know, there's a lot of times where it's 50 55 degrees on the hill and it's 35 30 in town and that's a that's a big big difference and so the hoop house will make a lot of difference on that but on, on those days you know i find myself opening the hoop houses to air them out some during the during the day because it's so warm and and so that makes a big big difference in terms of the, the the productivity for winter but even in the valley you know as cold as it gets inside the hoop house you can do some pretty effective work the, the flip side of it is it's generally warmer on the hill, except when it's not. <laughs> and so, you know, when we get those big snowstorms, like I say, in December, we had the last one, we had 20 inches of snow. And, and you don't get that in the valley, so you don't have to build for that. Like everything I build has to be able to stand up to 20 inches of snow, uh, 24 inches, sometimes even more. And if it doesn't, it collapses. And, and that was a hard lesson for me in this last storm. I was kind of under the weather and didn't get some of the stuff, some of the chicken tractors and stuff put away and, and definitely had some some pretty heavy losses in, in terms of infrastructure that I still got to try to repair. That's kind of on the list and and <laughs> not, not very far up the list at this point since we're kind of gearing in. So uh, one of the things that I've been working on I've talked about it quite a bit is, is using cardboard mulch. And it's, it's kind of an odd concept in that you're bringing in this 
this cardboard to the garden and you, you're kind of putting it down and some of it's going to decompose and some of it's going to not and you know there is an element of like sometimes it looks a little trashy but it, one of the things I'm really trying to focus on right now is figuring out how to deal with heavy weed populations without spending a ton of time and energy on the hands and knees pulling the weeds because there just isn't the time for that and and you can you can mess around and end up in a in a real uh, cost hole if you if you spend too much time pulling weeds. You essentially there's a great book called The Lean Farm, and he talks a lot about this concept of of what he calls muda or waste, the wasted time, in which like pulling weeds is not something that leads directly to uh, income for the farm, so it's a waste of time. That said, if the weeds impact the ability for the crops to produce then you're lowering the income and so the weeds are an issue but if you can figure out how to deal with them without having to spend much time then you're you're in a much better position and so we had a lot of different strategies one of them is to use old depth tarps uh, to cover up spaces that have gotten weedy and, and just let the plastic sit on them for a couple of months and kill the weeds I, I, like I said, I've been starting to use cardboard. We were using it a lot last summer to fallow beds because we didn't have enough water. And so what I was doing is I would take, um, you know, I'd put down a nice compost layer for so that the worms would have something to chew on underneath. And then I'd put the cardboard down and I'd put straw over the top of it. And the cardboard will start to break down. If, if it gets good and wet, it'll break down fairly fast. If it stays dry, it'll just kind of sit there, which is what it did this summer it just sat there but it didn't you know it stopped weeds it prevented weeds from coming up into the beds and so then this winter that cardboard started to break down i've got some in various different stages uh and as i've been pulling it off of the bed surfaces i've been finding that the worms underneath are really happy worms actually they, they really like to eat cardboard there's they like the glue in it um it's high high in protein and so they're really super pumped about it which is always something that's kind of interesting to me um, and so this this kind of strategy of using cardboard for weed barrier um, and and you know applying some nutrients underneath so that the soil keeps ticking along making sure that it stays moist under there that was one of the the things I struggled with last summer because we just didn't have enough water to keep the soil moist underneath the cardboard so stuff dried out more than I would have liked but what I what I did today was I got this asparagus bed. It's about a you know I think it's a eighty or ninety foot row of asparagus that the weeds are just totally taking over in. And I'm thinking to myself like, oh man, are we gonna pull all these weeds or what are we gonna do? And so I took the BCS with the flail mower. You can use any you know you could use a weed eater. You could use a, a regular mower. Uh, idea being just to cut the biomass down cut the grass down the weeds down whatever the you know whatever plants are growing there so I ran the flail mower over it chop everything up and drop it right on the bed surface and then I put down a layer of compost put the cardboard on top uh, with the cardboard you want to use some hold downs like I got I got these old they're like metal two by fours that we got at an auction a couple of years ago and so I use those to hold the cardboard down because you can get a good wind and it can blow it off if you know before it gets wet. Once you get good rain and it and it kind of soaks down a little bit, then it then it tends to stay put a bit more. But with the high pressure set up right now, 
it's hard to know, you know, how that all plays. So anyway, I put the card, I put the compost down, I put the cardboard down, put the hold downs on top, and then I put some straw over the top of it. That way, when we do get rain, the straw will hold water real well and it'll keep the cardboard wet. If it's just plain cardboard on the surface, it dries out real fast, and so you don't get nearly as much decomposition. So now I got a nice asparagus bed all prepped. It, you know, had I been really on my game and had I done this in October, I probably could have just left the cardboard and it would have broken down enough that the asparagus would just punch right through it when it comes up in, you know, in April or whenever. As it is, most likely what I'm going to do is just leave the cardboard on there from, you know, today's January 19th, which, oh boy, it's already January 19th, uh, but leave it on there, you know, for the rest of January, all of February, all of March, and then sometime middle of April start checking and seeing if we're getting any sprigs popping up from the asparagus and then just pull the cardboard off. And, and what I've been doing is using that cardboard and that straw to cover pathways because a lot of the times pathways are where the worst of the weeds are and they kind of have a tendency to spread into the beds. And so if I can get a double, a double usage out of that cardboard and, and straw and it breaks down over time, then um, that, that seems to work out very well for me. Again, you know, you're going to end up with a little bit of like, you know, pieces of cardboard here and there, and depending upon who you're talking to, it might might seem a little trashy or not. I, I leave that up for folks to decide for themselves. <laughs> Continuing in this same vein of, of discussing both weed suppression uh, and the use of cardboard in the garden, uh, we, we tried something out that Mixed results, I'll say. Uh, so last last summer we fallowed all of the garlic beds because, again, not enough water to, to plant summer crops in them, and so um, put down carb, put down uh, compost, alfalfa, cardboard, straw, um, and then so when we went to plant this fall, we we punched holes through the cardboard and, and planted the garlic directly into it, and you know sidebar not really supposed to plant garlic in the same bed you planted garlic in before. That's a sidebar. Anyway, <laughs> so we planted the garlic and then I put some compost over the top. In retrospect, perhaps a little too thick of a layer of compost uh, combined with the fact that we had punched down through the, the, the cardboard to plant the garlic. And so what I had was, was pretty spotty germination. And it's very interesting. It's like at first, germination was bad. I was like, "Oh no, this is a, this is a, this experiment's a failure. The garlic crop is a failure. Failure. Oh, oh no!" And then over the last couple of months, it's been very interesting to see uh, more and more of the shoots start to poke through. So essentially, just you know, kind of planted a little too deep. Well, we're a lot too deep, um, and still finding their way up to the light. And so. At this point, like the, you know, instead of uh, most empty spots with some shoots, you know, most of the most there's mostly shoots with some empty spots. I'm curious to see, you know, if the if the staggering of of the timing is going to affect the harvest. Like, are the ones that came up later gonna gonna finish later, or are they gonna finish smaller? You know, it's definitely. Um, to say the least, the, the jury is out on this experiment. Um, the other thing that, that can be a concern with the cardboard is like, you can definitely make a potential for gopher super highway under there where they can just, 
really party it up with nobody to really do anything about it. So, um, and that, that we, we encountered that issue last year. We were doing a double mulch layer. We were doing alfalfa underneath and then straw over the top again to, to try to conserve some water, which we did find that, that the double mulch layer really made a big difference in terms of water, uh, in terms of lowering evaporative loss. Uh, the, the alfalfa kind of acting like a blanket, um, kind of sealing, not sealing because that, uh, you know, implies anaerobic, but kind of settling down on the soil surface and really holding the moisture in. And then the straw over the top kind of um, uh, protecting the alfalfa, keeping it from getting too hot and, and, um, and keeping it from drying out. And then we also saw a really excellent um, mycelial layer, like a lot of mycelium forming on the alfalfa underneath. You know, the alfalfa has a, a certain amount of nitrogen, also has a, a growth, a naturally occurring growth hormone. In my opinion, very important to get the organic alfalfa. If you get the non-organic, it's probably GMO. It's probably sprayed with a bunch of pesticides. Um, organic alfalfa, not cheap. Like the hard reality for us this year is I would love to do it again, but I, I don't know that we're going to be able to afford to. So uh, as usual, you know, give and takes, trade-offs. Uh, but in general, kind of summing up this whole thread, like I think there's a, there's a very helpful place for cardboard in the process of weed suppression, in the process of, of uh, holding in moisture. It's a great use for fallowing beds if you need to hold them for time and you don't want a whole bunch of weeds to come up under them. Um, it's generally pretty available, you know, furniture stores, stuff like that. You don't want to be getting, you know, you want it to just be plain cardboard. You definitely don't want any colored inks or anything like that. Um, black ink, they say, is okay, but like when you start getting into the colored inks, apparently that changes the, the dynamic some. And then so in general, you know, I, I'm just always looking for ways to, to speed up the process, uh, you know, to, to, to be able to accomplish more, to, to spend less physical labor, um, and, and to have to worry less about things like the weed populations. And so um, I, I think the combination of, of heavy mulching, of cardboard, um, being able to, to kind of keep the moisture in. Uh, one of the things I also wanted to talk about is, especially in the hoop house, um, drip tape, drip tape or, or inline emitters, you know, kind of ground drip irrigation versus overhead irrigation, one, two, both. Um, and so in, in the summertime, we're using the drip to, to make sure to be able to target water right at the plant roots and, and also sometimes, depending on the crop, using the overhead irrigation. And so, for instance, uh, we found that with peppers and tomatoes, like tomatoes you wouldn't expect, but both peppers and tomatoes seem to really like the overhead watering. Uh, last year, we ran a hoop house with three beds of hot peppers and one bed of tomatoes, and it, it just crushed with with just overhead watering and so um that was a really interesting that was kind of a surprise to me because i had always heard like you know peppers don't like water on their leaves and kind of that stuff but from what i saw everything was just so stoked and the production was so much higher than we've ever seen before with peppers and, and same thing with the tomatoes like i think in one 50 foot row we probably did a thousand pounds of tomatoes over the course of the year like it just they they just dominated um and so in general you know the overhead you know I'm, I'm moving more and more towards 
overhead watering, especially in heat stress kind of situations because it cools the leaves, uh, it'll cool the roots, and you get, you get better coverage because that's one of the problems with drip is that it's so targeted that you're just you're dripping like straight down into the soil in the same exact spot and six inches away it can be totally dry and so in terms of your um, you know if it's dry the, the roots can't uptake the nutrients that are in the soil you got to have the they call it the soil solution you got to have water in the soil to be able to um, uh, for those nutrients to be able to be dissolved in and to be accessible to the plant roots and so Overall, especially in the hoop houses, like I say, starting to move more and more towards overhead irrigation. Uh, either, you know, in some instances, there's, I have the, uh, the overhead sprinklers from Farmer's Friend LLC that just kind of mount on the, the they zip tie to the, uh, to the ceiling of the hoop house. Um, also had really good effect with, with the wobblers. Um, the mini wobblers I don't like quite as much. I don't feel like they, they definitely don't throw as much water, and so I don't get as good a coverage. Um, it's closer to a mister than a, than a sprinkler. It's, it, it's a sprinkler, but it's, it's just throwing real small drops. The, the wobblers I feel like get, I get really, really good coverage with. And, um, and so for some crops, you know, for instance, last summer in the, we, we had a hoop house that was uh, mostly cucumbers and melons. And in that one especially, we ran both the drip and the overhead. And, and so it takes more water to do that. But for very thirsty crops, especially during the heat of summer, um, you, see, you see a pretty good effect. Like the, the cucumber rows, I, I was really impressed with the production on them. That, to the point where at this point, like, I, I don't really grow cucumbers outside of the hoop house anymore. Same with peppers. Tomatoes I do. Um, although it was interesting to see this year. This was an odd year for tomatoes in which I think we probably did a total of around 2,600 pounds of tomatoes, and I think maybe 400 of them came from outside the greenhouse. But we had, we had two 50-foot rows in the hoop houses, and we had eight rows outside. And so overall, the productivity outside versus inside, was there's a dramatic drop-off. And so some of those hot crops... It's very interesting just to see how much the productivity increases, how much the quality increases with just the one layer of plastic in the hoop house. It's kind of the same for winter crops. Like right now, the salad mixes that are coming out of the hoop house are just, they're flawless. Like they're so tender and so crunchy and crisp. Um, and the stuff that's outside, because it does get more freezing and thawing, it does get more battering. Um, it's good, but it's, it's hardier in a way that you don't really want for salad mix where it's like, it's, it's not quite so tender. It's, it's much more stout, we'll say. Um, so it's always kind of this learning process of like, what things can I get away with outside? You know, the kales, the collards, uh, cabbages really do well. Broccolis, cauliflowers, romanescos will do well with the caveat that they can be hard freeze sensitive. And so you can, you know, there's been lots of times where I've had a really nice crop coming on and gotten a real hard freeze that rotted the heads. And, and so then, you, you know, you essentially have a crop loss. And so um, then that kind of comes back around to that thread of, of winter farming and, and farming in general is a lot like gambling where you're always kind of playing the odds and you're trying to stack it in your favor as much as you can with season extension devices or with your crop planting timing and what you're and and you're always kind of evaluating like what losses am I willing to accept knowing 
and that I think that's one of the things you get better at over the years is knowing when you're gambling versus knowing when you're not. Um, and and so because if, if you know you're gambling and you crap out, then you're like, well, I, you know, I knew I was kind of giving it a shot. So, um, and that's just kind of life on the farm. Right. So I figured I'd spend a little time talking cover crop. We've had some real successes this year. We've had some real failures. Par for the course. That's farming. Um, a few things I wanted to drill into. One, the earlier you can sow cover crop, the better. No matter what, every time, always, it works out way better. Um, the stuff, we managed to sow some stuff in early September. And, you know, at that time, um, the crops are still in the beds, you know. So it's like what we tend to do is we under-sow it. And so it, it's, a, it's a little bit laborious. It's more hand labor. But I'll just take a bucket of seed um, we usually use the, the organic soil builder, which is uh, uh, fava, or sorry, bell beans, field peas, oats. Uh, sometimes it's got vetch in it. Um, and then we add mustard in for the bees. And, and I like to harvest the mustard and the, and the pea shoots for, for market. But the, so with, with under sowing, what we'll do is, you know, for instance, with tomatoes, uh, we did it with squash this year. Crops that are still in the ground, still producing. I'll go through with the bucket of seed and I'll just kind of work it into the soil around the plant so that I'm getting the seed in where it needs to be. It's underneath the mulch. Uh, it has the chance to germinate. It's near the drip and, and it's not going to get eaten by the birds because that's we all know that's one of the biggest issues with cover crop is the birds coming through and, and just chomping it all down before it gets a chance to get going. So if we do that practice of under sowing it in, in um, August or September, it gets up, it gets germinated, you know, it's six, eight, ten inches tall by the time the cold weather comes. And, and so you end up with this really thick, lush stand of cover crop. And, and the nice thing about that is that it's going to go through its life process. It's going to begin to flower. And, and once it starts to set flower, that's when you really want to, you want to cut it. You want to beginning, you know, be, be starting to move on to the next cycle, because if you allow the cover crop to make seed, then it's going to be pulling the nutrients back out that it was putting into the soil. So, you know, there's, there's a timing factor to it. And so those early stands of cover crop that we got in the ground, you know, in, in August and September are going to be ready for spring planting much earlier. So I know that I'm going to have those beds available. Um, and they're also ready for harvesting right now for forage. And so I'm using the cover crop a lot for uh, picking to, to, to harvesting to feed to the pigs, to the rabbits, to the chickens. Everybody likes those fresh greens. So, and, and the other thing about it is that if you've got a good stand of cover crop this time of year and you cut it once, um, don't cut it too low, but you cut it down to about four inches or so, it'll grow back. And, and the thing about that with, with pasture, with forage in general, is is the roots tend to be very similar below ground to what's happening above ground. And so when you go through and you cut the cover crop this time of year, you're gonna, the roots underneath are gonna die back, which is gonna add organic matter to the soil, and then it's immediately gonna start growing again. And so that the, you know, the photosynthesizing plant above is gonna be pulling sugars in, is gonna be synthesizing sugars from the sunlight that it pulls in. And those sugars are going to be transported down to the roots, which are going to be exuded out into the, the, the microbial life in the soil. And so when you cut that cover crop, you get a dieback of roots. And then as it begins to grow again, the roots begin to grow again. And you get a whole nother flush of, 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 of nutrient 
processing into the soil. And so it's, it's a way of kind of doubling up your game. So if you already have a really nice cover crop stand this time of year, it's actually very beneficial to harvest it. And if you're not keeping animals, you can harvest it to make compost piles out of. You can harvest it to make fermented plant juice. Um, there's a lot of good information. You know, if you check out uh, the Humboldt Local or Sunnabis, you talk a lot about making fermented plant juice. I'm, I'm kind of a hack with it. I pretty much like, I take a bunch of green biomass, I mix it with sugar, I pound it a little bit to get it softened up, and then I just put it in some buckets and let it sit for a few weeks, and then I strain it off and I keep that syrup, and I use that as fertilizer, uh, use that for compost teas, things like that, and, and, and you know, water it down one to 500 or so, maybe one to 300 if it's, if it's a pretty sturdy set of plants. And so I can make fertility, I can feed animals, I can make compost, which is gonna provide fertility later. There's a lot of options with the cover crop, um, especially again, if you get it sown real early. If you didn't get it sown real early, and, and that's the thing like, you know, so okay, cool, I got like four or five beds sown very early. I got another probably 15 beds sown medium, which have, you know, which have a nice six inch or so stand right now. But then, man, oh man, we sowed a whole bunch of beds. I, I probably, probably 20, 20 beds. Some of them like our big terraces. Like I sowed a whole lot um, late November, and usually that works out fine. You know, you, you you get it gets going. We get some cold in December, but we get some sunshine too, and it works fine. This year, with the way the the storms came through. Um, I got I, I got the worst germination I've ever seen in the cover crop, and so I'm kind of contemplating like, at this late date, am I going to re-sow it? Um, you know, the other option I'm kind of looking at is just not re-sowing it and starting those beds off early with, um, with with a veggie crop because I have the bed space open because the cover crop didn't really come up very well. So you know, the, and and essentially there are options like I could re-sow it if I wanted to. Um, if I wanted to buy the seed and deal with that, it's definitely kind of a, a crusher to, you know, it was, it was probably six bags of seed, six 50 pound bags of seed. And to get just no germination or very, very low germination out of it was, was a, a kind of heartbreaking. I really, you know, I was walking down the garden thinking like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And it was like, ooh, <laughs> that didn't work out so well. But it also kind of highlights the reality of, of kind of changing weather patterns in which, like I see a lot of I see a lot of cold snaps in December. I see a lot of two, four, maybe even six inches of snow. I've never seen a, a December snowstorm like this last one, where you know we got twenty inches and then it just sat there for ten days. Um, so that was kind of a game changer in terms of the the late cover crop, and it was definitely you know kind of puts lights a fire under me to get the cover crop seeds sown earlier, give it a chance to germinate and get going while the daylight is still fairly strong, while the sun is nice. Um, and, and then to end up with much better stands of cover crop moving forward. So again, farming, always gambling, always practice. You get better at it with, you know, with different, more trips around the sun. Um, long story short, harvest the cover crop. If you got a good stand of it, it's great for using for all sorts of things. Um, look into fermented plant juices, fermented fruit juices, uh, made a lot of fermented fruit juice last year with summer, you know, those big blown out summer squash, uh, pumpkins, apples, all those things are really great for it. It's been also interesting too, though, because anything that I would use to make fermented fruit juice, also my pigs really want to eat. And so it's been kind of this balance of like, well, we give it to the pigs, we make fertility out of it, 
and it's got me really thinking about growing forage crops, growing things specifically to save and feed to the pigs over the winter because um, pumpkins, will, you know, pumpkins will are still, uh, have still kept this long. They didn't go rotten, and so I still got a few left that I got from, uh, from Michiel at Mulligan Gardens. And big up, bro. Pigs are stoked. They're <laughs> going to make some fertility out of them. Um, and so it's got me really thinking about doing just a big row of, of pumpkins, doing sugar beets, doing fodder turnips, things that I can feed to animals over the course of the winter that are going to lower the feed cost because that's one of the hard realities right now is the cost of grain is just skyrocketing. And so you're looking at keeping animals, you're looking at raising animals for meat and trying to figure out like, wow, how is this cost effective with, with everything becoming so much more expensive? So always all the calculations, all the thinking. <laughs> so I want to spend a little time talking about forest health, um, fire preparedness, wintertime cleanup. This is definitely the time. Uh, so we've been kind of getting ready to do a few burn piles. Over the last few years, I've really shied away from burning because of the carbon factor. But at the same time, it's like, we, you know, there's a need for fire preparedness. And, and you can make some actually some really great biochar. And so what I tend to do is I'll either have a small trench or I'll have a burn pile that I'll get going. And, and what you don't really want to do, you know, if you're trying to make biochar, you want to get it while it's charred and before it turns to ash. And so as I get the, I get the bonfire going, um, I'm kind of raking out things that have charred down pretty good and I'm kind of spraying water on them to put them out or I'm working with a trench that I've already got and I'm getting it burning in the trench and as it starts to burn down I'm putting some dirt over it. It's a couple of different methodologies, you know, none of those are as effective as like an actual, you know, uh, like a, you can make a barrel, you can use a, you know, a 55 gallon drum to make a barrel that makes biochar. There's lots of good examples on the internet lots of information there this is again a situation where like i'm kind of a hack with it but it, it works and i like kind of a hybrid uh, like a hugel bed um hugel cultures refers to like the burying of heavy woody debris underneath the bed um so that as it decomposes it'll release nutrients your plant roots will be able to go down into it and access those nutrients uh, and the woody material will also hold water it'll kind of act like a sponge as it decomposes over time and so we do, over the last few years, we've been doing a lot of hugel beds, a lot of different types of hugel beds. Um, and also, you know, especially this was back, I don't know, six, eight, ten years ago, I used to do a lot more kind of hybrid hugel biochar beds where I'd burn it down in the trench and then add the dirt back over it. Um, and so going to get back to playing around with that. Uh, we've been doing both hugel trenches where, like, you have a, you, you know, you bring a machine in, like a excav mini excavator, you make the trenches, and then you fill the trenches up with the biomass. We've used cannabis stems, we've used logs, we've used branches from cutting, you know, from clearing brush. All of those things work great. Traditionally, you know, the Hugel culture, one of the main original early proponents of it was Sepp Holzer. Uh, he's a dude from, from Austria, he's a farmer out there. Uh, he wrote a great book called just the title is permaculture um and definitely was my you know my early introduction to hugel culture and i really loved what he had to say his his methodology is geared towards more towards hugel mounds and so he's kind of building upwards with the woody debris and then putting soil over the top of it 
doesn't work as well in, in arid climates like this because the above ground nature of it makes it dry out much faster. So like I say, we've tended to go with Hugel trenches. There's a little bit of a drawback to that in heavy clay soil. It can hold more water than, than you might like. And so that, that's been, at, at times we've encountered that here and there, but it also is a way of slowing the water down as it moving down the slope. So benefits, drawbacks, etc. Um, and then the other way we've been playing around with it is, is using the BCS. We've got a rotary plow for the BCS, which BCS is a walk-behind tractor, a two-wheel, um, looks like a, a real big rototiller. And, and it does, you can get a rototiller attachment for it. We don't, what I have is I have the, the rotary plow, I have a harrow, and I have a, a flail mower. Um, and there's a couple other things. So the, the rotary plow works. I can I can use it to trench with. I can you know I can use it straight down to just plow a bed, or I can throw the dirt to the left or the right. And so most of <laughs> up on the hill, right? So almost everything we're working with is is slope. There's no flat farming at my house. Um, so I'm I'm on the slope, and so what I'm doing with the rotary plows, I'm making passes back and forth along the slope. And so I'll throw dirt uphill to, to scrape back in later as I'm making the bed. And then I'll throw dirt downhill to make a berm. And so I end up with a trench with a berm and I end up with some soil uphill that I'm going to use later. So it's, you know, it's not the, not the deepest, biggest hugel action. And so for those beds, usually what we're doing is we're putting in old cannabis stalks, old cannabis branches and, and leaf material, anything that, that is, you know, it's biomass. Uh, a lot of a lot of like straw and bedding and manure and stuff from the chicken uh, the the chicken brooders a lot of that kind of stuff just any kind of biomass we can get our hands on really not a whole lot of like heavy duty wood biomass because the trenches just aren't that deep um, and so it tends to be a bit faster decomposition process wood chips are really great for this too um, with you know I like the I like the combination of the cannabis stalks with the with the straw and the bedding and the manure from the chickens because it's got a nutrient component for it. I've also done it just with with wood chips and compost and throw a little nitrogen in there. You know whether it's some chicken pellets, whether it's um, some blood meal or some alfalfa meal, just something to keep the you know because the wood chips can tie up the nitrogen a little bit. So I want to make sure that I don't end up with a with a nutrient deficient situation, especially because with these beds, like I want to make them and plant into them in the first year. So we'll get that biomass in the bottom of the trench and we'll start pulling the topsoil back in. And as I'm pulling the topsoil back in, I'm blending it. Uh, most of what we're working with is a, is a pretty heavy clay. You know, it's like a silt clay, very little loam, very little organic matter um, with the, you know, the kind of the base um, uh, soil profile that we encounter on the farm. And so as I'm pulling this, this kind of heavy topsoil back in, I'm also adding in quite a bit of compost, adding in rice hulls or something else that'll help to ameliorate it. Like I don't, I don't, I don't really like messing with, uh, with perlite or anything like that. So I generally rice hulls is my go-to. Um, you can, you know, you can get the organic rice hulls and, and that, that works to add just kind of some, um, a little bit of lightness to the soil. And so, like I say, blending the compost and the, and the topsoil and the rice holes, add a little bit of amendments in there, get it all back in. And then I've got a nice, you know, I've got about 14 inches or so of, you know, 10 to 14 inches of, of soil of, of, 
growing media essentially over the top of the biomass underneath and so and then i usually you know i'll put a thick layer of straw along the low side um to keep that erosion you know keep it in check keep the erosion in check and so we've made we've done eight of those 50 foot i call them the mini hugels uh and those have those have worked out really great for us and then we've also done eight 50 foot like full-on deep trench logs and 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 uh, uh branches and stuff um and those have worked out really great too so definitely super super happy with the, the various hugel processes we've been you know we've been kind of playing around with in the old days it was like we would make terraces and and hold up the terraces with all kinds of biomass and it wasn't because i knew anything about hugel culture it was just like how we're gonna you know what are we gonna do to keep these cut banks from moving um and then over time planting in things like alfalfa things like uh, phacelia um we've been selling a lot of uh alyssum lately which is really nice it smells good it makes pretty flowers uh, and brings in all kinds of beneficial insects and then um you know i also want to talk a bit about kind of the the process of, of looking at forest health and like obviously we're, we're clearing brush for fire suppression or especially around the homestead but also looking at the, the balance of tree species in the forest. Where I live, there's a lot of oak woodlands, uh, but the oak woodlands are pretty, uh, pretty often being encroached on by, by conifers, by firs, by pines. And, and so traditionally, you know, native peoples would burn um, fairly regularly, and that would, that would reduce the, the incidence of encroachment by the firs and by the the pines and so right now we're seeing a lot of you know a lot of the oak woodlands which is a crucial habitat um kind of being overtaken and overrun by these fast growing conifers and so one of the things that's nice that you can kind of do with with as you're as you're kind of clearing some of those conifers and, and kind of returning it more to a to a oak woodland type um landscape is a lot of that branchy material works really really well for uh for brush packs in the creeks, for doing little check dams that'll slow the flow of the water. See a lot of with, you know, with the number of roads um, and, and the way the landscape has been used over the last hundred years, you see a lot of erosion. And, you know, when I look at the creeks when it's raining and, you know, creeks are coming off the county road and, and the creeks are running brown usually. And so making these check dams, just taking the brush, and wedging it into the creek bed not making like big dams where you're going to build a pool behind it but just making little spaces where you're going to slow the flow of the water you'll get a little bit of water behind it but it's going to slow down and it'll drop out some of that silt some of that uh, uh ero you know that 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 material that has eroded into the water and is now flowing downstream where it's going to settle into the, the the gravel of the river channels and clog the salmon beds the spawning beds so the more that in the in the high country in the places where, where we don't have fish bearing streams that we can put in these check dams that we can use the woody biomass that's coming out of the out of the you know the forest health initiative um the better overall so that was kind of a long-winded <laughs> run at that it's always a joy to have the opportunity to share this time with you and um i'm gonna get ready to ride off into the night so much, Much love, Archived episodes can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Music. Much love, y'all.